Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the FT's U.S. Election Countdown podcast. I'm Amy Keene in New York, and joining me from Washington, D.C., the last remaining region to caucus in this primary season, is Courtney Weaver. So there's no way around it. It's been a historic week. Hillary Clinton became the first female presidential candidate for either main party. And Courtney, I think regardless of your political affiliation, most people would agree that this was a pretty momentous week. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people have very complicated feelings towards Hillary Clinton. A lot of people have very negative feelings towards Hillary Clinton. Uh, But I think few people would disagree that this really is a historic achievement. And I think you felt that on Tuesday night, you know, after all the hiccups of the campaign, you know, all the challenges she's faced over her personal email server, the Benghazi hearing, um, her qualities as a candidate, uh, it really felt on Tuesday night that uh, it was one of the rare moments of this campaign where uh, you were actually able to take a step back and think, you know, this is something that's never happened before. You know, we've never had a woman uh, as the presidential nominee for one of the two leading parties. I was at the Brooklyn Navy Yards. We were in basically it was a greenhouse structure, absolutely crammed, full of supporters and press, of course. And when she walked out on the stage to, uh, you know, to that song Brave by Sarah Bareilles, it was this, you could just sort of see, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a contentment, but there was um definitely a happiness. You know, she was sort of relishing in that moment. She, she made history and uh, you could definitely feel the, the excitement in the crowd. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that this was about eight years from the day that Mrs. Clinton conceded to Barack Obama. What did she do differently this time around? I mean, I think that's also, I mean, just to take a step back for a second, that's also part of why this this moment feels so historic. You know, there was a Saturday Night Live skit um, a few weeks ago you know, where the character playing uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, jokes, you know, to Bernie Sanders, let me tell you a secret. I really, really want the presidency. And obviously, <laughs> um, everyone laughs because it's so obvious that <laughs> Hillary Clinton yeah. really, really wants the presidency. Uh, you know, and this isn't she hasn't just been fighting tooth and nail for the past for the past year. She's been fighting for this for for basically eight years, you know, or longer, yeah, who knows, maybe longer. In the yeah. Senate. yeah, yeah, um, exactly. And yeah, so what did she do right this time? So she's I mean, it's kind of a good metaphor, I feel like, for Hillary Clinton as a candidate. You know, as she has said herself, she's not a natural politician in terms of, you know, she's not this great order like her husband is or Barack Obama is. Um, she's not as maybe as charismatic as, as some other uh, more prominent politicians, um, but she's incredibly, incredibly dogged um, and very thick skinned um, and very resilient. And so I think what she did right this time is in 2008, her campaign was dogged by all these, um, by, by all this infighting between various campaign strategists. Uh, one of her chief campaign strategists quit in the spring of 2008, um, which contributed to this whole perception that, you know, her campaign didn't know what it was doing, that the mm-hmm. candidate was mismanaged, that they couldn't come up with a clear message, um, and that they were really blindsided by Barack Obama um, and didn't really know how to handle him as a competitor. So this time, I think what's really interesting is if you if you think back to earlier this year, 
you know, she had some tough points in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, and there were some rumors at the time that Robbie Mook, her campaign manager, might have been about to get fired. Um, he did not. He has remained <laughs> with the campaign to this day. Uh, and they really just they stuck with the plan. You know, you can criticize the plan. You can say, you know, she didn't have a very distinctive message. Um but at least there was no visible infighting. No one was reshuffled. No one lost their job. Um, and even when it seemed, you know, in April when she was losing all these caucuses and primaries to Bernie Sanders, um, they kept, you know, they persisted and they didn't try to to make her into something she was not or to change message. Yeah, I spoke to several Clinton supporters on Tuesday night in Brooklyn. I mean, across different ages, different backgrounds. And I had a few questions for them. But the first was, why Hillary and why now? It's it's you know sort of generally one of those, it's the first question you, you tend to ask. But the common thread throughout these conversations I had, uh, it was a combination of, I've been a Hillary fan since her first lady days. I, you know, a few people said that. And the other significant point was something along the lines of, we need to show the rest of the world that Americans can be reasonable people. These are words from the supporters. And I think it really contrasts the way that these particular voters, these Clinton supporters, see what a Republican rival Donald Trump could do uh, in terms of representing the country if he were to become president. So it was an overwhelming chorus of, you know, Hillary is the right woman and person for the job. Here's a bit of what they had to say. I love that lady. I love her to death. So I'm a Democrat and I just want to be part of history. I think it's so inspiring on so many levels, not because she's a woman, but she's an immensely smart person who has worked at being a leader. I think this is a big moment of history to say who we are as Americans and how we're going to live and live within the rest of the world and gather people together and not be mean and not be spiteful and not be nasty. It's not necessary. So I think the one sort of, uh, I don't know if you call it an elephant in the room, it's pretty obvious. A few hours after Clinton had her her moment in California, in Santa Monica, Senator Bernie Sanders had a very interesting speech. I think a lot of people were thinking that perhaps beforehand, perhaps it was going to be a concession speech. There was talk that he had spoken on the phone with both uh, President Obama and Hillary Clinton. So what was Bernie Sanders doing in that speech? What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that there people walked away with two impressions. Um, there are some people who seized on his comments, you know, the struggle is not over, we're going to fight until the convention. Um, but I think I fall into the other camp where if you really parse what he's saying, when he's talking about the struggle, when he's talking about fighting to the convention, the sense I got was that he was talking more about ideas. You know, his campaign, he's always said his campaign is not just about him as a candidate. And when people in the crowd were chanting Bernie, you know, he's saying it's not just about Bernie, it's about all of us. So things that he's been fighting for, like increasing the federal minimum wage, um, reducing in income inequality in America. He, to me, he was making the point that, you know, this campaign is not just about um, putting Bernie at the top of the Democratic presidential ticket. Um, it's about, you know, really act, enacting change in the country um, and, you know, being a movement. So I think the question is, I think everyone is under the assumption as much as, you know, Bernie and his um, and his campaign advisors have hinted at various points on the trail that he'll bring the fight literally to the convention floor in Philadelphia in July. I think the question now is in what manner he chooses to um, to concede the race to Hillary Clinton and when. Um, you know, if you look at there's been so much talk about the Republican establishment, but I think all eyes are on the Democratic establishment right now to say how, you know, for lack of a better phrase, how will they reign Bernie Sanders in. I mean, I mean, I think they think there are two things to point out too. I mean, 
running for president and and having the kind of success that Bernie Sanders has had, you know, winning all these caucuses and primaries, it's hard to walk away from that, especially when you've been attracting crowds of tens of thousands of people. You know, his crowds have been among the biggest that we've seen over the primary, you know, even bigger than Donald Trump sometimes. Um, right, and yeah. the other thing, I mean, his, there are so many of his supporters who they call themselves, um, you know, Bernie or bus supporters where, you know, they some of them mm-hmm. would rather see Donald Trump in the White House than Hillary Clinton. They hate Hillary Clinton. Um, and there were a lot of those people and the, mm-hmm. they'd waited five hours to hear him speak. Um, and when he mentioned that he'd had this call with Hillary Clinton, they started booing. He has his own considerations to think about, but he also has to think about right. his supporters as well. So putting the Democratic race aside for a second, it, you know, it's starting to feel a little bit more symbolic than anything. There's another competitor that uh, at least the Democratic Party has to consider, and that's uh, that's one Mr. Donald Trump. He's had quite a week. Yeah, I think you could argue that this has been the worst week he's had on the entire campaign, which is saying a lot because he's had obviously a lot of complicated weeks. Um, so basically, complicated all- is yes, definitely one way to put it. <laughs> exactly. So everything started last week. Um, so there's this case about Trump University, which is a now defunct uh, educational program that Trump ran and that we have written about extensively in the paper. But mm-hmm. basically, all you need to know is that there is a judge who's overseeing a suit against Trump University. Um, and last week, uh, Trump suggested that the judge would, was a biased arbiter in the case because um, he is of Hispanic American heritage. Uh, in fact, the judge was born here in the U.S., in Indiana, but Trump suggested uh, that he couldn't do his job correctly. Uh, and then a few days later, instead of, you know, retracting the remarks, he basically doubled down on them and said he didn't believe a Muslim judge would be a fair arbiter in a case against him either. And so what you've seen is this really, it's really interesting split in the Republican Party, or maybe not even a split, but basically uh, over the past couple of weeks, it seemed like all these Republican leaders were coming on board uh, and endorsing Trump, including Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House. Uh, and then you had Ryan this week saying, whoa, 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 this is, you know, textbook racism is what he said. Um, and so now you have these these Republican leaders in a predicament. You know, this is not the first time uh, that Trump has been called off for making uh, allegedly racist accusations. You know, he's he initially refused mm-hmm. to disavow the white supremacist David Duke when he endorsed him uh, earlier in the campaign. You know, he had the the comment about banning Muslims from entering the U.S., uh, calling Mexicans rapists. Um, but for some reason, this time it seems to have struck a chord. I mean, I think it's it drills down to the fact that Trump takes everything very personally and his business is obviously very important to him. And I think it's kind of um, woken up some of these Republican leaders to thinking about what a U.S. judiciary would look like under President Trump. You know, is he going to use the tools uh, at his disposal for his own business interests? I mean, one of the things that struck me going back to some of the comments of Republican leaders, especially Paul Ryan, you know, you say those are, like you said, textbook racist comments, but I still support the candidate. How do you think that's going to play out uh, among the larger Republican base as we head towards November? I mean, whether it's in congressional or Senate races and then also in in the general uh, presidential race, it seems like a rather significant conflict. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You you basically have a divide in the Republican Party. You have some Republicans who are facing tough reelection fights for their seats uh, coming out now and saying, I cannot endorse Donald Trump because of these comments. And then you have other people like Ryan who are trying to to hug this middle ground. And I don't know. I don't know where it leaves. I mean, so Ryan is someone who's been long seen as this rising star in the Republican Party. But does 
you know, does this relationship to Trump and not being able to come on, on Trump decisively, will that taint him later on? Uh, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. I think that'll be an interesting sort of thing to watch. And his speech up in Westchester on Tuesday night, it took quite a different tone than we become accustomed to. So I think it's the third time he's he's used a teleprompter this this entire campaign. Um, and what that meant was that he stayed on message. You know, we've heard from Trump's campaign advisors that they always have trouble controlling him because his whole thing is he's a maverick. He always speaks off the cuff. No one knows what he's going to say, including the people who work for him. Uh, and this time he was obviously very scripted. Uh, but it was kind of a milk toast speech, which was weird for Trump. You know, I think the one interesting takeaway of the speech was that some of the remarks he made about Clinton, and he really foreshadowed how he's going to go after her in the general election. Uh, so one thing he brought up was he brought up her time at the State Department. He alleged that he, she had been running the State Department like her own personal hedge fund, which is obviously unsubstantiated claim, but an interesting tactic, especially when you think about how many voters don't trust Clinton, who think she's corrupt, who bought into to Trump's attack line that you know she's crooked. And then he, the other thing he said, which I thought was interesting, was he he said um, the Clintons have turned the politics of personal enrichment into an art form for themselves. Uh, and that I thought was particularly resonant just because it's something I've heard from a lot of voters on the trail. Most recently, I was in West Virginia and I was talking to a Democrat at a Bernie Sanders rally. Uh, and he was saying he couldn't vote for Clinton in November because he was sick of the Clintons. You know, he thought they were corrupt. And he was he said basically the same thing Trump said. He thought that they were all about their own personal enrichment. Uh, so it's just an interesting thing to to leave leave us with, you know, as we head into next week. Here, Clinton's in this historic moment. She seems to be on cloud nine. Bernie Sanders is fading into the background. Uh, all her her qualms and the concerns we had about her as a candidate seem to be drifting away. Um, and yet, just kind of a reminder how things can change quickly in this race. You know, five months to go until the election, and I'm sure there'll be weeks from now when Clinton will be on top and weeks when Trump will be on top. But it's it's definitely not over yet. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Amy P. Keen. That's A I M E E P K E A N E. And Courtney's at Courtney underscore F T. And you can also sign up for our daily campaign trail newsletter, White House Countdown, at ft.com forward slash nbe that stands for news by email so again that's ft.com forward slash nbe and be sure to download ft politics wherever you get your podcasts including itunes stitcher and acast hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, 
yahoofinance.com.